Um, we've been in the book of Jonah for a number of weeks. Uh, we had a three-week series that, that Pastor Jermaine preached while I was out. Um, but I wanted to just make some final remarks, mar- remarks about um, to just talk about what this book is about. You know, in, in high school, you had Spark Notes or you had Cliff's Notes, and if you didn't read the book, you kind of looked at what, what that said to kind of give you an idea, what is this about? And when you're reading the Bible, it's, it's a great question, especially when you read one, uh, an entire book of the Bible to say, okay, what was that about? You know, or to put it differently, what were the themes that were being presented to me? Or, or if, if you're not really interested in those things, why does this matter for me on Monday? And that's what I really want to talk about. Why does Jonah, this book that was written hundreds upon hundreds of years ago, matter to you and me? Why does this matter? And I think it does. So I'm going to read. Normally we would stand, but I timed myself. It took me about six minutes. So you know, I'm, not, I'm not going to make you stand, but I'm going to read the entire book of, the, of Jonah with you. And I'd ask you just to just giddy up, listen. If you've got your Bibles, get it out. Um, you can read along if you're a visual reader. They're going to follow along. If, if it gets behind, it's my fault and not theirs. Um, but we're going to read this word together because God's word read out loud is a good thing. So Jonah, chapter 1. I'm going to time myself and see how this goes. Ready? Go. Okay. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For, it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was on the ship into the sea, to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone into the inner parts of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us and we may not perish. And they said to one another, come and let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And what what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said, what is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing for the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Verse 11, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea might quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed harder to get back to dry land, but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous around them, against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, Let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. 
Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountain. I went down to the land whose bars closed up upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, and from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may relent, may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, oh Lord, now please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat in the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you, well, do, you do well to be angry for the plant 
And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord to us. Almost seven minutes. Good job. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God of mercy, I pray that you would sensitize us to both our need for mercy and your riches in mercy. God, I pray that you would help us to glean from this book what you intended for us to, to receive, that, that we ought to trust and obey you and align not only our outward behavior, but our thoughts and actions and, and inclinations to you, even and especially when we don't want to. God, would you do a renewing work in us that we might freshly appreciate the mercy that we've been given, that we might humble ourselves and extend that mercy to others. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just as a side note, again, I know that for some of you that was like a chalkboard, and, uh, but, but God intends for us to hear the word of God together. And in fact, in, in the ch- early church, it's, it's entirely possible that that was the majority of what happened is they would read these letters. You get the New Testament letters, and, and they would read them out loud. And that was, that was the main focus of what was being done. And let me also say that if you didn't read your Bible today, you just read a whole book of the Bible with me. Like, that's pretty good. So you got, you got a head start on your summer reading plan. You read a book. You read book one book. One more, what is it? One a, one a month. So you got two more to go. You got plenty of time. Just pick another. Do Micah. It's really short too. It's a little longer. Anyhow, um, I, I, all joking aside, I, I, it's valuable to read the Bible in different ways. And one of the ways you can do that is to take seven minutes. That's all that took. Seven minutes and read through a shorter book of the Bible. And you get, get a sense of the impact that it had rather than kind of breaking it up, which is good. It's good that we broke it up over a no, number of weeks. But uh, anyways, it was, a, I think, a helpful exercise. And if you didn't feel like it was helpful, then read it again until it becomes helpful. Um, and now that it's fresh in your mind, I want to draw your attention to, to a number of things. Three, three themes that I see. There, there are other themes that we could draw out from Jonah. Uh, and people have. They've written books and books and books. But I, I want to highlight three themes that I see that, that are, make this valuable for your life and my life. Not just valuable as, hey, this is an interesting story that we can tell our kids Make sure they obey God and not get swallowed by a, a fish, which would, by the way, that would be a bad application as a side note. Um, but three things that I think are valuable to us, and then, then the main point, I think, of this book. First, I, I, this book shows us the sovereignty of our saving God over creation. This book shows us the sovereignty, the, the control, authority, presence of our saving God, our God who saves and he shows specifically how God's sovereignty and his control is, is enacted over all creation. And I'm going to tell you why that's valuable to you and me, right? It's not just neat that God can appoint a worm to kill a plant. It's not just neat that God can appoint a fish to save a man. But that has application for your life and my life. Secondly, I want us to consider the theme of 
the negative effects of our own self-righteousness. And then finally, I want us to consider the theme of the radical mercy of God. Um, throughout the series, I've stated that, that the, the goal that the author wants us to take away is basically this. Don't be like Jonah. And if you were to teach this to your kids, it wouldn't be a terrible thing for you to just say, look at Jonah's life and don't do what he does. I mean, there's one point where in the psalm that he prays that he kind of seems to come to a point of uh, repentance, but really in chapters 3 and 4, you see that it's kind of this half-hearted repentance. And so you could say, don't do what Jonah does, but let me state it positively what I think the goal of this text is. The author is urging us to trust and obey our sovereign creator and savior, especially when we don't want to. The writer of Jonah is giving this letter to us in order that we would trust and obey Yahweh, the Lord, the God over all gods. We saw a lot of talk from from the sailors and from the Ninevites, who who both were idolaters, that there's a God who is greater. And that God is the one that we should trust and obey, especially when we don't want to. So let's consider, first of all, the the fact that God is in charge. Um, When I said that that there's this theme of God's sovereignty, what I mean is that uh, he has control and authority, and he is present over all that he's created. When you think about sovereignty, that's not really a word that we relate to well. I mean, the, the closest we can come to is the People magazine with, with King Charles on it, you know, with his, it was weird. I don't know. It's just, it's not something we relate to is, is sovereignty. I mean, if anything, it's, you know, the individual is sovereign. If you've grown up as an American, I'm so, I choose my own destiny, right? This is, this is, maverick America. But the Bible presents Jesus as sovereign, God as sovereign, and that sovereignty can be expressed in, in three kind of perspectives. His, his authority, that's his right to do what he wants to do. Control, that's his might, ability to do what he wants to do. And his presence, that's him being in the midst of the people and, and the things that he is exercising sovereignty over. If you look at verse 3 and 4 of chapter 1, we see God's authority, his sovereignty. Jonah runs, and we see this theme coming up. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. He's trying to run away from the sovereignty of God. There was this idea among the ancient people that, that you had kind of local gods, or you had national gods, you had city gods, and, and it's possible that, that Jonah had an idea that maybe he could, he could outrun God. It's It's possible. He thought he could get away from the presence of the Lord. But the reality is that God was present wherever Jonah was to run. The, the reality was God had authority over anything Jonah ran to. And he had control over the weather. So we see that in verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. He's, he's capable of controlling the weather. He has authority over the weather. And he's present in Jonah's circumstance to do so. We see it continue that after Jonah reluctantly admits that he's the cause of all the problems, they throw him overboard after praying. And in verse 17, it says that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. This wasn't happenstance. This wasn't just a, 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 a serendipitous turn of events for Jonah. Oh, yay, Disney, I get saved by my magic uh, grandmother 
See, I don't watch a lot of Disney movies. <laughs> Fairy godmothers, uh, uh, magic fish. No, God had appointed, he had assigned this fish, this purpose. And this wasn't some sort of, oh, Jonah, what are you doing? Okay, who's you? Are you, got, are you doing anything? Go get them. No, he had, a, he had prepared and appointed this fish. He had a plan and a purpose that was not going to be thwarted by, by Jonah. God was expressing his sovereignty. He was present deep in the ocean. He had authority over that fish, and he had control to make the fish swallow Jonah. And after that, he had authority and control to make the fish spit him back up in chapter 2, verse 10. And then in chapter 4, we see this interaction between Jonah and, and God where he's trying to lovingly present this, this object lesson. Jonah sees everyone repent, and, and it says that God relented, and yet Jonah goes out of the city. He's like, maybe God will unrelent. He's like, 40 days, you know, they responded early. Maybe, maybe God will change his mind. See the ridiculousness of his thinking. We're going to get to that in a moment. But God appoints this object lesson. In verse, chapter 4, verse 6, it says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. And then in verses 7 and 8, he, he says that when dawn came, God appointed a worm. And when the, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. God had, he was present in Jonah's circumstances. Right? It, it wasn't as though God was in Nineveh, but he wasn't outside the city. He had authority over these animals and plants, and he had control over them. God was expressing his sovereignty in all of these situations. And like Jonah's life, God is sovereign over yours. There's nowhere that you can run where God won't be present. The psalmist reflects on that. Where can I go and you won't be that? If, if I go the deepest parts of the ocean, you'll be there. Where can I, there's nowhere that you can run from God. And if you're trying to run from God, first of all, running from God to church is not a good way to do it. I'm glad you're here, but uh, you're doing it wrong. Not that there's a right way, but there's probably more right ways. I don't know. But if you're running from God, understand that you can't. You can't. When you sin, God is there. When you suffer, God is there. Like that's, that's the side that maybe we, 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 we can look at the Ninevites who were in their sin and their sinfulness had been left to suffer uh, because of their own foolishness. And we find ourselves in that situation a lot. I mean, at least I do. Uh, where, where you make a mistake or, or you sin, which those are two different things, sin, mistakes versus sin, and you do something wrong and it messes things up and you are left to suffer. But the good news is that God is present in that moment. God's sovereignty is not just that he gets to tell people what to do and where to go. No, his sovereignty means that he is with us. In Matthew chapter 8, we see Jesus also exercising authority. Chapter 8, verses 22 through 27, we see this story of Jesus and the storm. It says, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there was a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him and said, save us, O Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? 
Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the seas, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? The kind of man he was was a man of authority, a man of control, a man of presence. He was sovereign in that situation. That same Jesus has authority in your life. That same Jesus is present in the storms of your life. And that same Jesus will have control over his creation to save you in or through the storms of your life. Jonah teaches us that God is sovereign. Now the book also shows us this, this self-righteousness and how it impacts us. Right? So we talked about first God's sovereignty. That was the first theme I wanted to draw. The second one, which is going to take five minutes, <laughs> we'll see, uh, is the negative effects of our own self-righteousness. And if you think that you're not self-righteous, you're self-righteous. <laughs> right? If you, if you think, I'm, he's talking about other people. No, I'm definitely talking about you right now. And I, and I, you know, point a finger, three fingers back at me. It's me too. Pastor just like, yes, Eddie. Yes, you too. Um, no. Uh, Jonah suffers from the negative effects of his own unrighteousness. And in, in verse 3 of chapter 1, he says that he ran to flee the presence of God. This was a man who, at least ostensibly, he... he he should have known who God was. He should have known something about the presence of God. He should have known what it meant to and what, what lengths one would have to go to to escape the presence. Like, this is not some ignorant, like, oh, well, you know, I heard about this guy, God, and I don't know what he is, and, and, and so I'm able to do X, Y, or Z. No, he should have known, but he didn't. And, and I believe, at least this, the text seems to suggest that his hatred for the Ninevites blinded him from seeing the, the foolishness of what he was doing. And that's what sin will do. If you practice sin, if you live in sin, maybe you are a person who has practiced sin in the past, and by that I mean you, you do it more, you know, it's not just a one-time thing, but it, it's something you kind of, it's a pit you tend to fall into. That affects the way you think. And you begin to think things that, that seem logical to you, but when you tell your friends and family, they're like, what? And there's this tilt that happens. And we look at Jonah and we're saying, ha, he ran away from the presence of God. That's ridiculous. But how many times have we thought to ourselves, uh, muttered something when our spouse said something? Yeah. Or, or you were alone at the office and you did X, Y, or Z. Or you were on a, on a trip and it felt anonymous. And, and, and no one's around. God's presence can't follow me. Sin invites us to think ridiculous things. Jonah was trying to flee the presence of God. His rebellious attitude opened him up to entertain irrational, sinful thoughts, ideas, and eventually behaviors. When, when, we, in, when we walk out and we begin to believe bad things, my sin doesn't matter. It's not that big. God doesn't really care about this one. I'm doing other good things. When we begin to think that way, those ideas give birth to behaviors. Like trying to run away from God, who is, as theologians call it, everywhere. Jonah goes on and he, he has this conversation and he says, I'd rather die. He, he, he allows them to throw him overboard rather than praying and saying, God, would you relent? I'm sorry that I ran. And he's like, just throw me overboard. I quit. I quit on this. I'm so 
angry that things are not going my way. If I can't live in a world where I'm in charge, I don't want to live. And, and you may not be as drastic as he is, but how many times have we shaken our fists at God and said, this is not how it should be? Isn't that the core of anger? Like you, driving, it's just an easy example. Someone cuts you off and you get angry. This is not, not how it should be. You know, you're, you're in line at the grocery store and someone kind of sneaks up ahead of you and you're like, this is not how it should be. You know, I know this is self-checkout, but get in line. <laughs> you know, you go to the, grocery, or to, the, to the restaurant and they give you your food and you're like, this is not how it should be. That's, that's the... That's that attitude of self-righteousness that, that works its way into our soul and invites us to think ridiculous things. Jonah is the anti-example. When we look at him, it's like God is saying to us, trust and obey me, especially when you don't want to, just like Jonah doesn't do. So, in, in Luke 18, in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. You see these two individuals, one who is significantly self-righteous and another who is aware of his own sinfulness. Jesus is telling this parable, and he told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and he treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, in other words, a you know a dapper, well put, put together religious person who, who kind of crossed his T's, dotted his I's, made sure everything was right. And the other, a tax collector. And they viewed tax collectors as worse than sinners. Right? There's like tax collectors and, or no, sinners and tax collectors. Boo! They had, they had uh, tr- been, become traitors to God. Anyways, it goes on and says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like that other man. Or like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. If you pray and thank God that you're not like that person, slow down. (laughs) I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all I get. Also, if you have to tell God your credentials, again, you're doing it wrong. But don't we do that? God, I, I obeyed you. Why is this happening? I obeyed you. Anyways, um... But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, reconciled to God, in other words, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Don't we see that in Jonah? Jonah who's trying to exalt, I'm an Israelite, I'm a prophet. God, you should listen to me. You shouldn't, you shouldn't bring grace to these people. And, and the Ninevites and the sailors, they receive mercy, right? The, the sailors are just, give me a God and I'll pray to it, right? You're like, hand me an idol. Okay, please help us. Please help us. Please help us. And then they, they get to Jonah and like, who's your God? Yahweh, Yahweh, please help us. And Yahweh's like, okay. Like, how gracious and merciful is God? The Ninevites, which, again, they did terrible, terrible, terrible things, but for whatever reason, God allows that, that message to bring repentance in their life, and they repent, and God relents. 
Jonah's trying to show us that, that self-righteousness invites God to humble us. And then finally, and most importantly, the text talks about the radical mercy of God. This is the thing I'm most excited about. One of the most beautiful themes that Jonah gives us is this window into the, the mercy of God. If you go from beginning to end as we did, every person receives mercy. Jonah mercifully is born into the, the, the family of Israel. He's mercifully an Israelite. He didn't make himself that. He didn't make himself a chosen person. He didn't make himself a prophet. God chooses and selects him. God graciously sends him on a mission. He runs away. God graciously saves his life. He, he reluctantly obeys. God graciously has a conversation with him, begging him basically to say, will you not see things the way I see things? He has mercy. These sailors who were living their life apart from God, being sailors and, and doing what sailors do and not serving Yahweh, they receive mercy. God could have just said, you know what, the whole ship's going to go. You know, Jonah, you've made stupid decisions. You guys over here, you are all sinners. You're going to all go. No, they receive mercy. Nineveh, this whole city, 120,000 people and apparently cattle as well. Receive mercy. We talked about it last week. That actually has some bearing. It's important. Jonah was caring about a plant which had no worth. And he's like, well, if you care about the plant, then surely you should at least care about the cattle if you don't care about the people. Everyone receives mercy. You know, it's funny. I was reflecting on this. A lot of people are like, you know, the Old Testament God's kind of mean. And there are places where things are really serious because God is serious about sin. But I can tell you this, Jonah is an expression of God's mercy. God is merciful. And in the end, the writer of Jonah wants us to see that the Lord is truly a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And quoting Jonah ironically, relenting from disaster. God is merciful. He's merciful to us, which is shocking. And he's merciful to those with whom, to whom we would not extend mercy, which may be offensive. But, but that's the point of the story. We don't get to decide who God is merciful to. In Luke 19.10, it says that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about how we were dead. All of us were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. And we were all by nature children of wrath, Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. When you are at our worst, God looks at us and says, I'm rich in mercy. It's not when you came to church and you put on your deodorant and you look nice and you got your hair figured out and you put some stuff in it to, to get it to do what you wanted it to do. Is that just me? Okay, anyways. Um, that, that God's like, okay, well, you cleaned up, so you're... No, it's when you're doing the bad thing, thinking that you're all alone, that you're going to get away from it, saying no thank you, that God looks and says, I'm going to have mercy on you. But God, being gracious and merciful, gives us the gospel. And then, and then in, in Galatians chapter 3, he says this thing about us together. 3.28. The gospel does this. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for all are one in Christ. And what that means is that you can't look at that person and say, they don't deserve mercy. 
Because we're all, there, there are no distinctions that prevent us from receiving the gospel. There are no distinctions that, that put us at an advantage when it comes to God's mercy. God has been merciful to you and me. This book invites us, begs us, urges us to see the mercy of God and appreciate it. You and I, if you don't know this, you and I, we are sinners. And that, what, that, what that means, that's not a word that we like to use. It's not, we don't just make mistakes, right? I, I listen to a lot of songs, contemporary Christian music, and sometimes it's the mistakes that God helps us with. God, if your kid trips, that's a mistake. If you tell your kid to clean their room and they say, no, that's a sin. We sin. We don't just trip. We, ch- we see God's rules and we say, no. We hear God's word like Jonah, go do this, and we say, no, I'm going to go over here and do the opposite. Yeah. And God is merciful to us. Because of our rebellion, we're separated from God. That means that you and I, we're separated from relationship with him, and ultimately, if that continues to the point of death, we have an ultimate judgment that involves really bad things for a really long time. Footnote, eternity. But God, who is merciful, sent Jesus to bridge the gap by living a perfect life that you and I should have lived, dying on the cross and rising again, so that we who trust in him could be reconciled to the Father by his mercy. Have you embraced this good news today? That's what this book is about, is mercy. God is sovereign and he's merciful. And you and I, we're, we're more like Jonah than we'd like to admit. You look nice, I love you, I'm so glad you're here, but you are a rascal. (laughs) And I'm a rascal. And the writer of this book is urging us to trust God who is more merciful than we could ever imagine and more capable to extend mercy than we could ever hope for. John Piper writes in in one of his books about mercy. And I wish I could spend more time on this But I want you to listen to what he says. The focus of the New Testament is that the wealth of God's glory is at its apex the wealth of his mercy. So in the New Testament, the writers are trying to express the glory of God. And what does that glory look like but the wealth of his mercy? This is something that the world takes very lightly. The riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. He's quoting Romans chapter 2 verse 4. God, listen to this, God created and redeemed the world so that, the purpose of all of this, God created and redeemed the world so that he might make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, Romans 9.23. And from that text, he says this. He says, what that means is this. The universe exists primarily to display the wealth of the glory of the mercy of God for the enjoyment of his redeemed people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. I kind of shoved that in on the back end. But, but here's the thing. Jonah is intended to show us something of the glory of God that is expressed in his, his extravagant mercy. And, and he invites you to know God who is merciful. But in order to do that, you have to see things differently than Jonah did. You know, we're left with the question at the end of the story. Does he get it? 
And, and part of the reason that question is there is to invite us to, to, to answer the same question. Do we, do we get it? Do you think that you've basically got it together? You know, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. I got it together. I stopped cursing. I don't yell at my kids a lot. You know, I don't speed much. Or, or, or do we recognize, man, I'm, I'm in need of God's mercy. You know, are you, are you the Pharisee? God, you and me, we're a good team. Or are you saying, God, I see that even as I approach you in obedience, there's so many things where there is darkness that needs your mercy. And if you're over here, family, it's okay. Please be honest with God because he knows. God is rich in mercy. The book of Jonah shows us this. Jesus shows us this. Will you embrace this mercy today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your mercy. And I recognize that I am I'm in deep need of not just your mercy, but an appreciation of that mercy. Lord God, I pray that, that you would be merciful to us. That, that you would encourage us that you've not left us to despair, but that you have given us hope in the gospel. And that this gospel is a gospel of mercy. Lord, we thank you that, that as Paul says it, grace and peace and mercy come from God the Father. And I pray that you would minister mercy. If you're in this room and you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you want to do that today, you want to, to trust him, not trust your own self-righteousness, but you want to humble yourself before him and trust him, would you raise your hand? There's nothing magic in the raising of your hand, but it's an expression of what God's doing in your heart. That's great. Once that hand is up, you can put it back down. That's great. Would you pray this with me? God, I, I, I want to turn away from everything I know to be sin. I don't want to run to Tarshish. I want to run to you and your will. And I trust you. I trust Jesus and his perfect sacrifice to make me right with you. And God, I want to live in light of your rich mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.